0: Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio.
1: We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint and it's Friday. We just spent an hour talking about Israel and uh, Gaza. Now, let's go to Washington, D.C. and talk about uh, the fact that we, as Americans, now have a new Speaker of the House. His name is Mike Johnson. He is a Republican from Louisiana. The House of Representatives went 21 days without having a Speaker. Uh, why should you care about that? Here's why. Uh, well, why don't we, you know what, why don't we just let Bob Nay answer the, answer that question. Bob Nay, welcome to the show.
2: I think you as a citizen can answer it better than <laughs> I can, but I'll try.
1: <laughs> well, that's, okay. that's my first question, Bob. Uh, 21 days later, there is a Speaker of the House, and I know there's a lot of people in this audience saying, why should I care?
2: Right, and you know the uh, statements that had been made in D.C. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, said, "Well, if you really want this job, you have to fight for, and it doesn't matter how long it goes." But that's really not accurate because I've got to give Patrick McHenry credit. I've I've known Patrick McHenry since he walked into the Congress the first day he was there, and he was the temporary speaker. But he knew that he needed to be very careful because he was only a steward of the technical process. You know, the speaker keeps things going, the the way the house is, you know, run, the staffing, et cetera. And uh, he had no more power than that. Now, there were also, we're starting to find out, and we haven't seen enough articles yet, but we will, Kevin, there are people that came to him both sides of the aisle and said, hey, let's cut a deal to move this piece of legislation or that piece of legislation. And he knew he really would have a problem to do that because it's not, Consistency. Also, it might be questioned the legality of of a temporary, you know, non-voted speaker to do that. So, we do need one. The Republicans went way too long. Now they've got a speaker. I will caution them because I do communicate with a couple of them here and there. And uh, if they pull a McCarthy on this new speaker, you know, as they did with Kevin McCarthy, then they're going to have a problem because. They just can't afford for this whole process to start over again. So a speaker is needed not only for the legal part to the process, but also for some type of order, usually, even though it doesn't seem like it, but some type of order in the House as to how
1: it's run. Not to mention second in line to the presidency of the United States. Well,
2: that's another great
1: point. If you don't have,
2: if if something had happened now, now there's always ways around these things, but they're not you know good ways. If something had happened to the president and the vice president, there would had to have been an immediate election to the speaker, so that that person could become the president of the United States. And again, that's no particular way to. Uh, you know, to to run a a country. Uh, So, yes, they are third in line. There's a succession process after that. But it's important to have
1: that into play, too. Bob, I love to remind our listeners that there's no better guest in the world on this subject than you because in ancient history, ancient times, uh, you were a part of, oh, I can't remember your nickname back then, but the, you were part of the Newt Gingrich crowd that came into power under the Contract of America, uh, where determined to not do business the way uh, it was used to be done uh, under Bob Michael and Jim Wright and all those folks. Mm-hmm. You were going to be uh, uh, bombastic and fight the good fight, and you did that uh, to some success And yet here we are. Did you ever think you'd see a group of Republicans in the House be more conservative than your group was? No.
2: And I I was called the mayor of Capitol Hill was my nickname uh, (laughs) because the speaker made me chairman of House administration, which has a ton of duties. But, you know, the big ones, uh, you give members carpets and staff and money. Yeah. So that's why they call him the mayor of Capitol Hill. But anyway, you were everybody's best friend. Right, right. I never thought I would see this because, you know, I lived through the Gingrich era where Newt was considered the, you know, the grenade thrower. And then the animosity between Clinton and Gingrich yet working for welfare programs, development programs and five balanced budgets, you know, occurred. And then I was there when Newt was basically, you know, thrown out. And then we had to get a new speaker. And we had Livingston, and he shocked us by standing in front of us and saying, "I'm not going to go upstairs and be speaker." He had a sex scandal, and he just quit right on the spot. We had to pick a new speaker within minutes. Right. So, you know, I've seen I've seen that part of it. I never thought I would live to see what happened uh, with this entire process from McCarthy 15 rounds forward. And anybody that says tries to justify it by saying, well, it's, it's a good, healthy part of the process. It's not. This has been agonizing, not fair to anybody really in the country, and uh, not, not a good thing for Republicans if they'd like to keep control of the House in 2024. So I, I never yeah, – I, I living through everything that we had to do with Contract of America, balance and budgets, et cetera, I never thought it would come down to where the Republicans – could not constitute a leader.
1: It, it, Bob, it, it, I, it's an assumption that this, this hurts uh, Republicans at the ballot box, and yet, if we've learned nothing from Donald Trump, we've learned that those assumptions that we have made in our politics, so many of them were wrong. Uh, sex scandals, uh, saying inappropriate things, it, it almost doesn't seem to matter anymore, and, it doesn't ruin people's careers the way it ruined people like Gary Hart or Bob Livingston. And so maybe this doesn't hurt uh, House members uh, come election
3: time.
2: I think in the long run, it hurts the, the system. I'm, you know, I, I've sent out a news story today to all the stations. I mean, there are so many members trying to get rid of so many other members to censure them and sanction them because of attitudes they have. And there's some members, to be frank with you, that I just really don't like, but they don't need to be censured because they have a a different opinion. And this thing has just bubbled to the top. It's almost become a, a vicious circle over in the house where you can't say anything at all, whereas when I was there, you really, you could, you know, say a lot. But I think there has become a numbness to certain things, you know, Santos and all the lies he did. Uh, Bowen just pulled the fire alarm. Right. You know, I served there. I knew. Everybody knows. He knew that wouldn't open the door. And so you see these things, and then you wonder, okay, how many more things are going to go on when we've got all these major issues going down, yet members are at each other's throats, I think, worse than any time in modern history. So... If I don't know. I think the public's becoming numb to a lot of of things, though. I really
1: yeah. do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they're numb to it. Certainly, talking to my own children, uh, y- you get that feeling. Um, mm-hmm. Bob, Israel, and uh, Hamas in Gaza. Uh, we just talked to a former foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders for 45 minutes, and uh, he didn't have much good to say about anything. Uh, where does this all go in the next two weeks?
2: I think that there's a couple of issues here. I don't even—I can't even get into the nuances of everybody wanting to sue everybody over their opinions or wanting everybody to be fired or not hired. I mean, that's a whole different show, right. you know, for an hour at some point in time. But the big picture issue here, I think, what's important is that well, you know we're going to support Israel. It's the democracy in the Middle East. We're, we're going to do that, but. I think we have to be extremely careful that we now do not make this our war. Uh, we've got to be very, very careful with that. Uh, the Iranians sent some drones, and we had 22 injuries, and I understand that. Now we're firing at Iranian, quote, back targets. In the East it's hard to tell who's where and who's backing whom. Now, Iran does have their fingers in this, no doubt about it. The regime's a terrible regime. But I think we've got, again – to be very, very careful. Somebody talked the other day about chemical weapons and Hamas. Well, that brings nightmares back for me personally of when we had weapons of mass destruction that never existed, right. and yet we voted. So I think we have to take a deep breath, and the president and the Congress needs to be very careful that we just don't do a full-scale, you know, go get them. Uh, this is all Iran, and we're going to start bombing every spot possible in the Middle East. Yeah. I I just think supporting Israel is one thing, making this our war is another. I don't know what Bernie's advisor said, but you know, that's kind of where I think we have to be careful.
1: Yeah, no, he said he said before we uh did make the mistakes of 9/11 uh, resist the temptation for revenge and ask ourselves a series okay. of very hard questions uh, and and hoping that Israel would ask itself yeah. the same questions. Bob Ney, right. always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we have Kevin McCallum from Seven Days as our next guest. I mispronounced his name for a second time. I will hear, I'll never hear the end of that.
4: Kevin okay, McCallum, welcome to the me. show. Happy to be here. I do not think I'll let you live that one down, Kevin. But moving <laughs> onward.
1: <laughs> don't tell Paula Routley that I made that mistake. I will not. Uh, Okay, we're going to remove four dams around Montpelier. Uh, I can't wait to see how that happens, and it's all described in your great story. I Before you explain it to us, I'm turning the page to what I'm going to call the photo of the week, which is the Bailey Dam circa 1934 in Montpelier. What a structure, and it's most of it is gone, but... Uh, tell us about that dam and others and their relation to the flood uh, in July.
4: Sure. So I think your listeners probably, when they think of a dam, uh, they think of something that holds back a lot of water in, in a big rainstorm so that flooding downstream is lessened. And that is what many flood control dams in the state of Vermont do and did during the flood, right? Right. So at the Waterbury Dam, we've written about these dams before and how well they performed. Um, and some of the challenges with them. But generally, I think they're largely understood to have done a great job to prevent worse flooding in um, in the state. We're talking about dams that are not flood control dams. They're dams that are called runner of river. The water flows over them freely. And because of that, people don't think of them as a problem for flooding. They think, well, look, the water is flowing right over that structure. And when the water is raging through town, you can't even see the dam.
3: Right.
4: So how could you argue that that's causing a problem for flooding? And it takes a little thinking through to understand it, but effectively it raises the, the level of the riverbed by several feet, wherever one of those dams is. And then when the floodwaters come through, there's that much less space for the water to fit through. And so the water instead goes up over the banks and into whatever's next door. And if next door is a floodplain, not a big deal. If it's a far, if it's a you know an empty field, not a big deal. If it's your state capital, that's a big deal. So they're taking a hard look at removing some of these dams for flood control, which is something that was new to me. I understood them to be good for fish passage and other benefits, but. I wanted to understand a little more about it, and I learned a lot.
1: And you and you write that there's there are a lot of issues here. Uh, number one, it's expensive to remove these things. Number two, as as a friend of mine who owns uh, uh, other hydroelectric dams around the state told me when I asked him, he said, "Boy, before you remove those old dams, you got to make very cl- it's clear that there's a lot of." Pollution and sentiment behind those dams, and you talk about the old capital city gas company that burned coal. Right. What uh, you know, you know, uh, that- you know what is what is. Uh, I see you interviewed A and Secretary Julie Moore. She's obviously cognizant of the risks of sending all that contamination downstream.
4: Yeah, no. Dam removals almost all always come when they're done properly. Uh, they come with a very robust and expensive sediment removal process behind the dam. So you will see backhoes, uh, if, this, if these projects go forward, you will see backhoes removing hundreds, if not thousands, maybe even millions of tons of sediment from behind some of these dams before they come out because they don't want to breach the dam and now have all that sediment just racing down uh, through the Winooski and into Lake Champlain, especially if, as you say, some of it could be contaminated sediment because of historical industrial
1: practices. Who's behind all this, Kevin? Who who are the experts that we need to rely on to tell us how to do this?
4: Well, luckily in Vermont, we've got a lot of really smart people when it comes to uh, the environment and um, rivers. And the group that's directly behind... the the possible removal of these four dams is the Vermont River Conservancy. I spoke to uh, their development director uh, Akasha Ranjo and um, she she explained to me why they're doing this, how they hope to go about it and at the moment they're going to do an engineering study that looks in great detail at whether each of these dams ought to be removed and what the impact would be on the hydrology of the region because you want to do these things very carefully. You want to make sure you're right that'll have the intended impact. So they're gonna have a a study done, gonna take several months, maybe into the middle of next year. And then once they have that study in hand, they can go to state leaders, uh, city leaders, and say, look, here's what we wanna do, here's the money it's gonna take, Uh, let's get started.
1: And there is a report coming to the Montpelier City Council and you talked to the mayor Jack McCullough, uh, who is awaiting the results of that report, uh, is that? Do I have that right?
0: Yeah,
4: that's the report that uh, the Vermont River Conservancy has uh, has hired an engineering firm in Waterbury to conduct. So when that report's done, they'll deliver it to the city and, and probably to the state and say, "Here's what we want to do. It's going to be costly, but here's why it's
3: worth it."
1: Yeah, so you've clearly become an expert in (laughs) river hydrology, and I'm going to anticipate the calls that are going to come in here from uh, folks who say, just dredge the darn thing. And it's pretty clear, uh, tell us what you've learned about that, but it's pretty clear that that is exactly the opposite of what modern hydrologists advocate. Well,
4: first of all, I want to say I am... Far from an expert in river hydrology, <laughs> I find it fascinating, but I am not an expert in any way. Right. Um, I I do agree with you. You will probably get a bunch of calls about this because it is uh, it is a source of great debate. Right. We, we I I spoke to a former uh, you
2: know,
4: city works director in Montpelier who said, Nah, taking out the Bailey Dam is not going to do much. I spoke to a, a hydrologist who said he did. He's kind of of the same mind. He just didn't sort of seem to think that they were going to do much. Um, and so, uh, but you're right, there's also a group of people who feel that we should just dredge these waterways, increase the carrying capacity of them, and get the water out of here. And there is some truth to the idea that you need to remove blockages from waterways to improve uh, flooding, flood resiliency, as I understand it. But that's a far cry from dredging these waterways, right? These are still natural environments; these are natural habitats. They're they're home to creatures. They're 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 um, important for many many reasons. And so, the notion that you just need to go in and dredge them to improve flood resiliency is maybe while tempting, uh, is not where the science of this stuff stands, as
1: I understand. That Bailey Dam uh, behind the Shaws in Montpelier, I know there's a whole community of kayakers and swimmers and others who have been behind the the funding and uh, uh, construction construction and design of a confluence park there at the confluence of the two rivers on the Winooski I bet they would love to remove that dam
4: they, they are that is one of the uh, reasons so before the floods occurred that is sort of what you always heard right it's sort of for recreational purposes it would be really nice to remove these dams and make this more of a natural environment and that's still the case it's just that since the flooding the the narrative has changed a little and the argument has changed substantially uh, to to stress the flood benefits the flood resiliency benefits of of that project of that same project so yes there are multiple groups for multiple reasons who argue that these dams ought to be removed and kayakers and, and recreational boaters and others uh, are our are, are key constituency because upriver of the of that Bailey Dam by the Shaws as you know, right, it's kind of just really slow-moving water because it's been completely choked in with silt. So it's not a lot of fun to paddle along, just sort of a little lake essentially. Um, so they'd like to see a more natural flow of that river, and taking out the Bailey Dam arguably would do that.
1: You know, I I got a comment. We're we're in the middle of a Energy transformation in this country, <clears throat> and it's fast from from oil and gas to electric, and it's just fascinating to me. I, I'm just going back to that photo that you've got on page sixteen of this week's Seven Days, the the sort of twentieth uh, century infrastructure that we built to generate power, we burned a lot of coal, we did a lot of pollution, uh, we didn't know better. Now we know better, and it's just fascinating that we are now kind of picking up the pieces of the 20th century industrialization of America, and we're cleaning up the mess we made. It's not all bad. It's not like we knew what we were doing. It was the best we had back then. And now that we have better alternatives, it's just fascinating to look back at 1934 and look at what actually existed on the Winooski River. It's amazing.
4: Yeah, I think it's important to note that the photo you're talking about and the dam you're talking about is not a hydroelectric dam. It was a flood control dam because they did have the big flood, uh, the Great Flood of 27, just a few years before. Right. So they were very cognizant and worried about flood damage on the Winooski. So, but you're, and you're, but you're absolutely right that that um, the tension between removing these dams, right, and generating electricity from them is is intense. Yeah, that is why you don't really hear. Um, uh, dam removal advocates talking about taking out hydroelectric facilities yeah. in Vermont. Yeah, really
0: because don't. yeah, that's and right. So, Be, yeah,
4: yeah. It's, so you actually hear that out west. Out west, you will hear groups who are fiercely in favor of dam removal say, "We don't care. <laughs> we don't care that that's owned by PG and E, and it's owned it for a hundred years, and it's generating electricity. Take it out. It's destroying key habitat." Here in Vermont, there are so many small, derelict, defunct, deadbeat dams, whatever you want to call them, that aren't doing a damn thing for anyone that there's plenty of work to do to take those out before anyone goes after any of the hydroelectric dams in the state because, as you say, hydroelectric is a great source of power, a clean, green electricity. So nobody really is going to be touching any of those dams anytime soon, as far as I can tell.
1: Kevin McCollum in this week's seven days, 7daysvt.com. Say hi to everybody and thank you for joining us as always.
4: Thank you, Kevin.
1: We're back and we're going to talk about Wheels for Warmth and guess who's joining us today? Richard Wabi, who I call the Uber boss of Wheels for Warmth. Uh, Richard Wabi, welcome to the show.
0: Well, Kevin, it's great to be here. I, I got to tell you, I was, I was listening here on hold. And uh, DEV's got this great trip to Antarctica. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out why anybody would go to Antarctica. <laughs> why? <laughs> okay? So I had to do a quick search for, like, the best reasons to go to Antarctica. And it says the cold will make you feel alive. There you I go. cold here in Vermont. Okay? Uh, uh, the icebergs are the size of cathedrals. I don't need any ice bigger than that which which will fit inside my cup.
1: You know, you're a perfect uh, you're a perfect passenger on that cruise line. I want you to call Scott Milne right now at Milne Travel and book your trip. <laughs> and I'm not going. <laughs>
0: I don't see myself going because I don't care how many different species of seals there are. <laughs> the only seal I'm concerned about is the seal on my refrigerator to keep everything cold. All
1: right, <laughs> tell us as if Lee Cattell hasn't done this enough this week. But tell us where can we take our tires? When do oh, we take? Where do we take them? And when do we take them?
0: Kevin, this was unbelievable last night. We had uh, four locations running. Um, last night for drop-offs, we'll have four running again tonight, um, in Barry, at the Vermont Granite Museum, down in Menden at the Casella Construction Site on Industrial Lane. Up in Stowe, we got Tom Hub, uh, local personality, running a, uh, collection site at the Mayo Farm Events Fields. And then, of course, up in Williston on Avenue B at All Cycle in the Casella, uh, recycling place. Um. We collect, last night, we collected in excess of 1,500 usable tires. 1,500 usable tires last night across this state. And I'm guessing we're going to see another fifteen to 1,800 tonight. By Saturday, we'll have a sale, tire sale. We all know, discounted tires. Um, but by Saturday morning at 8 o'clock when we start, there will be approximately 3,600 tires sitting between Rutland at the Casella site in uh, Menden and at down at the Vermont Granite Museum in Barrie. There will be over 3,600 tires sitting there waiting for people to come in and purchase those tires. And, again, discounted rate, I think the most expensive tire out there is 20 or 25 bucks. Imagine getting a set of four tires for your car for less than a hundred dollars today.
1: Okay, I got a problem. Uh I (laughs) I split I split firewood and I I put a tire, a used tire, on top of a stump so the logs don't drop to the ground and I gotta bend over and pick them up. I, I need that tire. I can't bring it to you guys.
0: Well, I'll go further. If that's what you do that tire that you use to uh, guard that stump, whatever you want to call it, yeah. is probably one of the biggest breeding grounds for mosquito.
1: Because
0: every time you pick that tire up, you get wet because it's got water inside it. So here's what I'll do. You bring that tire in, you get rid of it with us, get it out of the waste stream, get it out of there. And we have the Vermont Department of Agriculture there Slicing tires and they're taking the sidewalls right off because you're using it as a bumper. I know what you're doing. Right. And you will, we'll give you a couple sidewalls. And if you're attached to that old tire you've been using for years, I'll have them slice your tire and give you both your two sidewalls back. Those sidewalls don't collect water or hold wow. water to create that mosquito breeding ground patty casey has done a hell of a job with this whole thing as a matter of fact patty's up there right now weeding through one of our (laughs) piles of of bad tires and the department of ag is already up there cutting tires slicing them taking the sidewalls off so the farmers will be able to uh, lock down the tarps on their uh, bunkers.
1: Wait, you mean Patty Casey, my neighbor, the famous folk singer?
0: I don't know. Patty Casey, is yeah. she a folk singer? She, she's a folk
1: singer. Are you she kidding works me? For yeah, the she, she works for Anson Tebbets at the Department of Ag- Ag- Agency of Agriculture. She's a
0: folk singer?
1: Oh my God, she has got a voice that will knock you over.
0: Oh, that does it. She's going to be entertained. So, folks, we also have entertainment this afternoon. Patty, Patty Casey, the folk singer, is going to be entertaining us in between slicing tires.
1: Okay, where can I do that? Where, where where do I take my tires? I live near Patty in East Montpelier.
0: You bring them on down to the Vermont Granite Museum at 7 uh, Jones Brothers Way in Barrie. Okay. Um, and uh, we, are, we will be there. I said this yesterday with Lee. We'll be there from 2 to 6, and everybody started showing up at 12.30. So I'm not going to tell you what time I'm going to be there, but we will be there all
1: afternoon. All right. Last question. Where Where do I find the governor so we can say hello? He's out there. We know that.
0: Well, actually, the governor has been on this uh, mobile home uh, deconstruction detail. Yeah. Uh, it was funny. I was talking to a security guy. He's actually in Berlin this afternoon deconstructing um mobile homes that got damaged because of the flood, and I was talking to one of his security people, and they say, you know, this is probably the only governor in the state that would climb under a mobile home to pull eight tires out, all flood damage, full of mud and everything else, to drag them up to wheels for work. <laughs> and he wouldn't let anybody help him. He had to do it by himself.
1: Fantastic. So, okay. Yeah. Wheels for Warmth, Richard Wabi, Vermont Granite Museum, and lots of other places. Hey, thanks for joining us, and good luck.
0: Hey, Kevin, thank you very much, and I appreciate all you guys have done. You're a huge sponsor, and you guys make it successful. Thank you.
1: Thanks a lot. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break, and then we got to come back and talk about books. Um, we are going to do our monthly visit. With my friend, Mary Bisbee Beek, the publishing Sherpa, and where we're going to go over recommendations for books that you won't find on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back uh, on Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back, and we're going to go right to our friend Mary Bisbee Beek, the publishing Sherpa, for her monthly rundown of Great Reads, for this weekend, especially if the weather's not going to be good. Mary, welcome.
3: Hi, Kevin. Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm sorry. We have a little bit of a truncated uh, uh, time slot right now, so I guess we're going to have to move a little quickly. But, boy, do you have some great recommendations.
3: I think I do. But I just have to quickly say, just because some of these books might not be on the New York Times bestseller list doesn't mean we wouldn't like to see them there. Exactly. Um, So... So get out there and buy these books and enjoy the reading. Right. Um, the first, the first one I have is um, it's a family saga, and it's called The Nightingale Sonata: The Musical Odyssey of Leah Lubichitz by Thomas Wolfe. And um, this is uh, the spoiler to this is that Leah is Thomas Wolfe's grandmother. So um, first first person research was not too difficult for him to do. Um, forming the story took him many years, and um, the, the outcome is terrific. It's just, it's an amazing book, and you just, it's too big to do a read-through in one sitting, but I think you could do it in three if you really get into it.
1: Oh, wow. And if you have any
3: sort of musical um, background, you're really going to love this. Um, Leah was a little girl who left Odessa, Russia um, with just her violin and she became um, very famous. She performed on all stages all around the world including Carnegie Hall and she became a founding faculty of the prestigious Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. The story is filled with heartbreak and triumph, tenacity and spades, and lots of famous people um, walk on and off the pages of the book and I think this is a terrific book to plan for a long Thanksgiving weekend, um, if not before, if you have that opportunity. And it's a really nice antidote if you don't like football.
1: I, th- those of um, us, those of us in Vermont who know the Trap, the Trap Family Lodge and the Trap Family singers' story, and the Sound of Music yes. movie, there, it, there are echoes of that.
3: There are, and there are also many music festivals around all of New England during the summer months. Yeah, and um, uh, Tom has um, often brings musicians together, and then he'll he'll talk a little bit of this story, and it's really something to look for um, because it's he puts on a really good show, oh, great. and he's written a terrific book.
1: Okay, what's next?
3: Next is a terrific Halloween book. And it's it's of interest. It should be of interest to adults, um, but it's definitely found a little bit of an audience with uh, younger YA young adult readers. And it's called Lost River, nineteen eighteen, by Faith Sheeran. And um, this book was the winner of the Leapfrog Press Global Young Adult Fiction Prize in twenty twenty one. It's the story of the Von Beast family, who inherits a house at the edge of a magical forest where the dead return from the afterlife. When 10-year-old Anne's mother, a midwife, delivers a stillborn baby, and her father, a mortician, accidentally brings that infant back to life, the von Bees find themselves at the center of the drama that raises questions about the relationship between the living and the dead. This book really um, enters the realm of magical realism. And um, this. Once you start reading it, there's absolutely no question that the that the writer Faith is a poet. She's a poet first and foremost, and she brings all of those wonderful qualities um, to this story. The the um, let's see, um, sorry. Oh no. Uh, The prose is just really rich and delicate, and um, I think. I think that every
1: almost everyone in the family might like this. Can I drag my 29-year-old daughter away from reading Harry Potter for the 15th time and into a book like that? I think I can.
3: It could just be a station identification for her because <laughs> it's, a, it's a very slender book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've never read Harry Potter. I should probably do that.
1: Oh. I, I read them out loud uh, to one child and then... I started falling asleep on the second child, but they were fantastic. That's great.
3: Great. Um, Okay, the third book that we're talking about today, probably, uh, breaking a rule here, um, probably was on the New York Times bestseller list.
0: Oh, okay.
3: uh, Sorry, but I have to say it's one of my all-time favorite books. And I was just passing the bookcase yesterday in the living room, and I thought, oh, my God, I have to add this book um, when I talk to Kevin this week. It's called The Principles of Uncertainty by Myra Kalman, and um, Myra actually offers the best description of the book herself. This is a year in my life, profusely illustrated, abounding with anguish, confusion, bits of wisdom, musings, meanderings, buckets of joie de vivre, and restful sojourns. I would urge everyone to run, not to walk, but absolutely run to the local bookstore, which we know is their pond, I believe, and buy this for everyone on your Christmas list. Even though, or maybe, especially because it's not a brand new book, but it has that timeless quality that once you have it in your hand, you'll wonder what you ever did without it. It's an appropriate gift for anyone at any time of the year, but with Christmas coming, this could relieve some of that gift-giving anxiety. Buy one copy for everyone on your list, and then you're done. You can go back to reading.
1: (laughs) Okay. Oh, gosh, on my list. Yes, well, Bear Pond in Montpelier, but Bridgeside Books in Waterbury, which is uh, right outside our front door here.
3: Oh, terrific.
1: Yeah. Okay, and lastly.
3: Okay, and the last book is, um, it probably should have been in last month's lineup because it's about, it's called... Um, ban this book and um, it's for a four to eight year old uh, audience in your family Um, but I think adults will love it too it really drives the message home and the great description is this book it's banned, it's right there in the title Uh you shouldn't be reading it why? it has giraffes for one thing and hippos don't like how tall giraffes are so we had to ban them Same thing with birthday cake. Everyone was fighting over that one piece with the flower, so we had to ban it, which means, you know, birthday parties are also banned. Don't even get us started on unicorns. This just opens up a big discussion about what banned books mean and what our civil liberties are um, for as young as a four-year-old. And what I love about this is the author dedicates the book to teachers and librarians, and I say amen to that. And the author is Raj Handler, so get to the bookstore, and I'm sure they've got it um, because it's a fairly new book. another rule broken well, so that's it for October
1: well, no rules, no rules on this show when it comes to books. Uh, we just want them to be bought and shared and read, but I would also add. I'll buy that as for my daughter-in-law, who next to you, Mary Bisbee beak has the greatest job in the world. She works at the Library of Congress, and
3: oh my god,
1: right? I and I we we're, we're yeah. going to visit in Washington, and I told her that I expect a full tour. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. <laughs> I did an event there um, with one of my authors a few years ago, and I have to say. My palms got sweaty and I got chills when I just walked in the door. It's a, yeah. just an amazing, an amazing physical space, and and considering what is housed there, it just you know makes people crazy.
1: Okay, so everyone let's,
3: should have at least one visit there.
1: Let's go back over it: the Nightingale Sonata, Lost River, the Principles of Uncertainty, and. Uh this book is banned. You can get them at your bookstore. If they don't have them, you can order them. And don't worry, they'll get there in two days. They don't have to get there in 24 hours uh, by using the uh, dreaded A word. Go to Bear Pond Books in Montpelier or Bridgeside Books in Waterbury, Phoenix Books in Burlington or wherever else. And I'm blanking on the bookstore in Barry, and it'll come to me before the end of the show. Uh, Mary, in the two minutes we have left, I I don't want to let this moment pass without commenting on the passing of our neighbor in Montpelier, the poet Louise Glick. Uh, I'm not a poet. I don't read a lot of poetry. But there's something about passing her in the grocery store without Actually, knowing who she was, uh, she was the poet laureate for the United States for Vermont, and she was a Nobel Prize winner. What uh, What did you think about when you read about her death?
3: I just thought, what a what a great loss. Um, she was really she, she was really a one off. She was a magnificent poet, um, award winning in so many ways, and um, I think. She was the poet laureate of the United States. Yeah, it was a little much for her socially. I think she was, you know, pretty much of a shy person, um, very private person, and she really wanted to spend all of her energies on creating new poems, and um, that was her expertise. And she will definitely be missed.
1: She will be missed. Uh, and there's something fun about. Passing her in the grocery store and not knowing who she was, and, and just her being just another neighbor. Uh, Louise Glick uh, died last week. Mary Bisbee Beek, as always, thank you, and we'll see you next week to talk more about books.
3: Okay, sounds great.
1: Mary Bisbee Beek, the publishing Sherpa. She's based in Portland, Oregon, and she specializes in helping authors uh, shape their books. And get them published. You can Google her if you want to contact her. That book that bookstore in Barrie was is called Next Chapter Books, and you should check it out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is our show for today. And I really, really welcome you sticking with us on very tough subjects. We did a lot of Israel and Gaza today, and that's that's always a tough one. Uh, my thanks to our guests, Mary Bisbee Beek, Matt Duss, Richard Wabi, Kevin McCollum of Seven Days. And we did get a call. Uh, we did a show recently where we mentioned a book called uh, about the Kennedy assassination, and they were asking us for the title, and I have it. It's called The Final Witness, a Kennedy Secret Service Agent Breaks His Silence After 60 Years. I believe the author is Paul Landis by the way the show becomes a podcast at wdev so you can listen there any time remember i'm here wednesdays and fridays you can find me at kevinkls.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called conflict of interest i'm on twitter and instagram if you want to follow me my podcast conflict of interest examines the issues we deal with on the show so subscribe to that and come back uh, with us on DEV next Wednesday. As always, we'll talk politics, media, culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivrigan, uh, and all the folks at WDEV. Lee Cattell was with us for the first half of this show. Next week, uh, I do not have... The guest list in front of me, but we're going to do some UVM medical center things. We'll do some politics. Uh, I'm trying to get Karen Paul on the, on the, uh, to come to the studio because she has announced that she's running. She is a member of the city council. I believe she's president of the city council of, of uh, Burlington. And we'll have her on the show to tell us why she is running for mayor because Moreau Weinberger is not running, uh, for reelection. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on The Friendly Pioneer. Hello, Kenley Squire, WDEV.